Christian church. Let's read from here. Luke 1, starting at verse 8. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained in her place three months and was named Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. going to uh, have a look at the words of that um, song together, um, but let's first come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the joy and privilege it is to share your word. Um, and yet, Lord, yeah, just always conscious that it's so easy to preach your word even and to hear your word um, and simply to go through the motions especially on a day like this. Um, Lord, I pray um, that you would arrest each and every one of us. Uh, you would grab our attention. Um, the things we've heard before, we would hear in new light. Um, the things we've heard before, we would rejoice in in new ways. Um, yeah, Lord, we, yeah, we, we need the message of Christmas. We need it. We need to hear it. We need to believe it afresh. Uh, we need it just as much as we needed it the very first day. So, Lord, help us. Um, yeah, give us a new sense of wonder uh, at Christmas, at the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, um, we've been looking at, uh, we've been in a series in the various songs of Luke, the various songs that surround the birth of Jesus Christ, right? And so we, we looked at Zechariah's song, we looked at Simeon's song, we looked at the angel song. Um, and this morning, what was just read was the very first song. So we've kind of gone forward and gone backwards to the very first song, uh, the most famous of the song, uh, Mary's song. Mary's song. Uh, this is the, the kind of song or the hymn that she composes um, at this time in the book of Luke. And in short, this song is, is really about a promised revolution. Right? That's what it's about. There's a promised revolution uh, here in Mary's song. And that's what we're going to look at in our kind of short time together. This, this promised revolution that Mary sings about or composes this hymn about. And yet, before we get into that, it would be helpful to say a few things just to catch us all up about where we are in the story. 
if you're familiar with the nativity, you might know that Gabriel, Angel Gabriel, had appeared to this man, Zechariah, to tell Zechariah that he would give birth to a son. His wife, sorry, would give birth to a son, Elizabeth. And Zechariah didn't believe the angel, right? Because he was old, and more importantly, Elizabeth was really, really old. And so Gabriel tells Zechariah, because of that, because of his unbelief, he's not going to speak a word until the son is born. And so when the son is born, eventually Zechariah opens his mouth, and that was the very first song we looked at, Zechariah's song. Well, in contrast to Zechariah, once the angel Gabriel has gone through to see Zechariah, on his way back up to heaven, he goes to see Mary. And he tells Mary that Mary is going to give birth. Mary, who is a virgin, is going to conceive and give birth. And Mary believes. Right? So she's different to Zechariah. Mary believes. And that brings us to our passage where Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, goes to see Elizabeth, her relative, who is pregnant with John. John. Very, very, very much an aside. Elizabeth and Mary are relatives, not, not necessarily sisters. Uh, that's something I'd always got something confused in my head. I, I realized that uh, this week. Right, they're relatives, right? Um, that's got nothing to do with anything I'm going to say. It's just a fun fact for trivia. Um, they're relatives, right? Anyway, she goes to see Elizabeth, her older relative, and as she goes to see uh, Elizabeth, John, who is in Elizabeth's room, leaps for joy because of Jesus, who is in Mary's womb. And that's what sparks off this song, this great hymn, that's traditionally called the Magnificat. And it, it takes that name because the first line of the song says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where that language comes from. And there are basically three things, three things in this song that help us to understand this promised revolution. Firstly, God opposes the proud, Secondly, God gives grace to the humble. Thirdly, God is faithful. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, and he does all of this because he is faithful. So firstly then, this song teaches us that God opposes the proud. I want you to see how Mary describes the proud and the powerful and how God responds to them. So look at me from verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Second half of verse 53. The rich he has sent away empty. God opposes the proud. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you would know that this is a theme that actually runs throughout the whole Bible. That God opposes the proud. In in other words, God has been opposing the proud for a very long time. You go back all the way to the beginning, the very first book of the Bible, the the book of Genesis, and you see a group of people, the whole world, humanity, who had gathered together to build this tower in order to make a name for themselves. They are going to build this tower that was going to reach heaven. And in the midst of their doing that, in the midst of their pride, their hubris, God comes down to see what they're doing, and God divides the languages in order to scatter their plans because God opposes the proud. The very next book is the book of Exodus. You see the might of Pharaoh and Egypt, this great world power, and how God rains down plagues on Egypt because God opposes the proud. 
You see, in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of kings, the, the, the king who is king of all these other nations, the king who is in charge of the greatest world empire the world had ever known, God causes Nebuchadnezzar to eat grass like an animal. Because Nebuchadnezzar had claimed his greatness and how great he was and how he had achieved all these things by his mind. Well, why does God do that? Well, because God opposes the proud, right? He scatters the proud, to use the language of this song. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. He sends away the rich empty. So the proud, the independent, the self-satisfied, the self-sufficient, God opposes them. If you, find yourself in, if you find yourself in that category, what happens is you find yourself that you find that God is your enemy, right? Because God opposes the proud. And it might be fair to ask, as we, we look at this song, why is that, right? Why is it that Mary here is singing about God opposing the proud? Why is it that God opposes the proud? What does God, what's God's issue with the proud, Well, I think as you look through the Bible, what you see is God opposes the proud because those who are proud are fundamentally lying. They're lying about reality. The Bible says that everything we have comes from God. We are utterly dependent upon God for everything. The Bible tells us in him we live and move and have our being. The Bible tells us that there is nothing we have that we have not received. The Bible tells us that every good gift we have comes from God above. So the Bible tells us that we are, in ways we could never fully get our head around, we are utterly dependent on God. And yet the nature of sin is that we begin to believe the lie that we are self-made. That we are somewhat independent of God. Pride is the denial of who God is. In fact, you might want to say pride is the attempt to replace God. It's the attempt to say that the role that God plays, we play, I play. It's the attempt to say that actually I stand at the center of the universe and not God. It is treason against God. And that's why God opposes the proud. And the culmination of all the times we see God opposing the proud, the culmination of all of that is found in Christmas. Because in Christmas, God has utterly opposed the proud. Mary sees that in God choosing her to bear the Messiah, God was doing something he had always done. God was opposing the proud. Now, how is it, how is it that God is opposing the proud through Christmas? How is it that Mary sings the song, like, the angels have told you you're going to have a child, Elizabeth and John are happy. Why is it that Mary sees this as God opposing the proud? Well, God opposes the proud through the lowliness of Jesus. God chooses to save in such a way that it is an offense to the powerful and to the wealthy and to the self-satisfied. God's coming as a baby in a manger, because there is no room in the inn, is an offense to those who are self-made. So the thing about power and wealth and education is the more we have of it, the more tempted we are to look down on those who do not have those things. We begin to define world or define life and define people by those things. There's a theologian, who, uh, a German theologian who existed, lived around the 
Second World War. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called Live Together. And in that book, he, he mentioned something that I, I thought was, was quite profound. He said that one of the ways we, we know we're sinners, or one way that sin plays out, is that when we first meet people, there is a part of us that is seeking to find some advantage we have over them. When we meet someone, we're seeking to find something that we have over them. So you meet someone and you think, ah, actually, you know what? This guy's probably smarter than me. But I think I'm better looking than them. Or they're smarter than me and all things being equal, they're better looking than me. But you know what? They don't have my social skills. I'm a bit more sociable than they are. Or I have a bit more money than they are, or, or maybe I'm a bit stronger than they are, or, or maybe I'm a, so, so we, we look and we talk and you know, you're, you're, you're asking questions, and yet there is a sinful part of us that's trying to see, what do I have over this, okay, this person may have, they may be better in so many things, but what do I have, what, what can I say, okay, this, this is my thing, because the nature of sin is that we define the world by power. We define the world by wealth. We define the world by intelligence. We define the world by our social skills. And when that becomes the case, and if that is the case, what happens then is it's easy for us to ignore and to put aside people that do not have those things. People we think do not have anything to offer us. And so that's and and, and, and when you think of that and you think of Christmas. What then do you do with a baby that's born in a manger? Right? Literally born in a feeding plate for animals. What then do you do with a child who grows up in nowhere, Nazareth? What then do you do with a man who is hung naked on a Roman cross? What does a wise person have to learn from that kind of a person? What do the powerful have to gain from someone that seems so weak? Christmas is the rejection of the proud. As Paul says, the Jews seek a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but God has given us the cross. God has given us the manger, things that are foolish and weak in the eyes of this world in order to shame the proud, in order to shame the powerful, in order to to make foolish the wisdom of this world. The things that we build our lives on, the things that we are tempted to find our identity in, God has rejected all of those things. Where our intelligence or our power or our wealth can get us so far in this life, when it comes to Christmas, when it comes to God's salvation, those things matter nothing at all because God has opposed the proud. Uh, A few weeks ago, we, we saw this in the Gospel of Matthew, the people from his hometown. They saw Jesus and they were, the Bible says, they were offended by him. Why were they offended by him? Well, because there was nothing so special about him. He grew up in Nazareth just like them. He, he was just like them. He was just a normal guy. He was in school just like them. Maybe he didn't get the best grades in school. He might have been just okay, right? He wasn't the best person in PE class. He, he wasn't the wealthiest. He wasn't the tallest. He wasn't the best looking. He was just a, a normal person. And because we so value those things, they reject Jesus until today, The danger is that those of us who are powerful, we're wealthy, we're intelligent, we reject Jesus because he's not impressive enough to us. 
And look, when I speak about those who are powerful and those who are wise and those who are rich, the danger is, is that we think that applies to everyone who is more powerful, more rich, or smarter than we are. Let's be clear that we, we are those who are powerful and wise and rich. Um, we are the powerful. Here in the UK, most of us are powerful. We have options that many people in the world would love to have. We are the rich, right? Most of us would wake up and have a thought about what we want to eat and what we want to wear. And that's a sign of the privilege that we have because of our wealth. We are the wise. Most of us have way more education than most of the people in this world. And so when Mary sings this song about God opposing the proud and God bringing down, sending the rich away hungry and bringing down the powerful, when Mary sings about that, we, we should feel that. And we shouldn't feel that for the, the royal family or whoever we define in that way. We should feel that for ourselves because there is something about those things that causes us to find our identity in those things and to find our value in those things. And if you do that, you will find that God's salvation misses you. If we are tempted to find our security in our bank balance, we will miss Christmas. Or maybe you might put it this way, Christmas will miss us. If we think that our degrees, which we think maybe we put so much stock in, and we think our intelligence, our brains, you know, we've been able to figure so much stuff out. And if we think that's what's going to get us to God, or we're going to think our way through Christianity, and somehow we're going to understand it. Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian, and you think, you know, let me figure this thing out. Let me understand it. Let me ask all the questions. And you think that by your brain power, you will find your way to God. You will not find your way to God, you will not find your way to Christmas because in Christmas God has rejected the wise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and and this really is the command then, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if any of us thinks that we are wise in this age, we should become fools so that we can become wise. If any of us think we have some great thing in this life, some great thing that makes us feel proud about ourselves, that thing will be the reason why we miss Jesus Christ and we miss Christmas because God has opposed those things. God has treated those things as worthless. If you're here today, you're not trusting in Jesus Christ. The way to find joy in Christmas is to not put value and stock in all those things. It's to recognize how much you need God and it's to cry out to God for help. Because God opposes the proud. That's the first part of this promise revolution. God opposes the proud. And it goes hand in hand with the second part, which is that God gives grace to the humble. So if you look with me back from the beginning, verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Skipping down to verse 52. He's exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. This is the great reversal. This is the great revolution that Christmas is about. God brings down the mighty, but he exalts the lowly. And again, this is something that you see throughout the whole Bible. That God chooses those who are disregarded by society those who seemingly have no power, those who seemingly have nothing to them, those are the ones that God chooses. Those are the ones that God gives grace to. 
when you look through the Old Testament, again and again, it's the younger siblings that ought to not be as important. Those are the ones that God chooses. It's the weak nations that don't have a lot of military power. Those are the ones that God chooses. And one way you see this theme very clearly is in the fact that God again and again uses and chooses women who are barren to accomplish his purposes. In a society in a world in which for, to be married and to not have a child was a, a source of such social shame. And I say that, of course, today that can be the case. Today that is the case, right? Um, today you have to deal with all kinds of things and family members and, and there's pain and there's shame involved. And you might say those things were heightened in the ancient world. And in a world like that, again and again, God chooses women who are barren women who are infertile, to accomplish his purposes. God chooses Sarah, the barren woman, to give birth to Isaac, the child of promise. God chooses Rebekah, who is barren, to give birth to Jacob, who becomes Israel, from whom God's people got their name. God chooses Rachel, who is barren, to give birth to Joseph, who will save his brothers and save Israel. God chooses these barren midwives, who seemingly have no power, to rescue the Israelite boys, and to thwart the plans of the mighty Pharaoh and Egypt. God chooses Manoah's wife, who is barren, to give birth to Samson, the mighty warrior. And this great song that Mary sings here, this great hymn of praise, points back to a particular barren woman, Hannah. This song is based on Hannah's song. And when you read the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel, what you see is that Uh, Elkanah, her husband, had two wives, and one of these wives had loads of children, and Hannah was barren. And again and again, year after year, she faced shame and shame and shame, and God chose Hannah to give birth to Samuel. Again and again, God chooses these women who were barren. God, by and large, does not choose those women who had lots of children and who were really fruitful and and were really respected. No, God God chooses the barren. He chooses the socially excluded. He chooses those who are despised. He chooses those who are weak. We see even here in this passage, right, that it's Elizabeth that blesses the older. She blesses the younger, Mary. It's John who is older, who leaps for joy at Jesus who is younger. God chooses the things he chooses in the way that's opposite to the way society chooses. God gives grace to the humble. And one reason for that is that God is pleased when we recognize how much we need him. Faith pleases God because faith recognizes that we are utterly dependent on God. God is pleased to give grace to those who recognize that apart from him, they have nothing. Those who are rich and powerful are tempted to think that they are self-sufficient, but those who have nothing more easily see the truth, which is that all that we have comes from God, and God is pleased to give grace to those people. And you might say there's another reason why God is pleased to give grace to the humble. That becomes clear here in Christmas. God gives grace to the humble because when God gives grace to the humble, it is clear that it is God's work. One thing about God is that God does not wish or desire to share his glory. When God blesses the powerful, the rich, the wise, they attribute it to themselves. They think it's something about themselves. 
Some of us know what this means. We, we know what this is like. You, you were looking for a job. You didn't have a job. You prayed. You asked God, give me this job. God gave you the job. A week later, someone's asking you about the job and oh, how did you get that job? And you're talking about all, all the techniques, all the things you did and all, all, all the steps you took and how you revamped your CV. And, and, and there's no place for God. Despite the fact you had been doing those things for years, it, it didn't bear any fruit. But God did it. But because you feel like you have something, because I feel like there's something to me, I have something, I don't give the glory to God, I, I give it to myself. The rich and the powerful, they, they, they take God's credit. They steal God's glory. Right? That thing that you were hoping for, you, you were in a situation, you didn't know what to do, you didn't have the wisdom to do it. You prayed. God gave you the wisdom to, to go through the situation. And now you're, you're given master classes about this thing with no reference to the fact that God gave you the wisdom to do that. That's why God gives grace to the humble. That's why God gives grace to those who have nothing, because when God does that, it's clear that it's God's work. That's why God uses barren women. Right? They couldn't claim it's something about them. Clearly, it was God that did that work. And obviously, the, the culmination, the climax of all of that is the virgin birth. These barren women conceiving, these are all kind of impossibilities, but none of them are as impossible as Mary, who was a virgin, conceiving. And when Mary, the virgin, conceives, it is clear this is God's work and all the glory belongs to God. And look, church, this is good news. It's good news. This revolution is good news. It's good news because it means that every one of us can have the blessing of Christmas. That there is not one of us that is excluded or needs to be excluded, I should say, from the blessing of Christmas. Look, if God's blessing in Christmas, if God's salvation in Christmas was for the rich, then some of us, because of our bank balances, we wouldn't qualify. If it was for the powerful, some of us just don't have that kind of influence. If it was for the intelligent, the wise, some of us would not pass the entrance exam. But because Christmas is for the weak and the poor and the foolish... Any of us can find the joy of Christmas. Any of us can find God's salvation in Christmas. God's salvation is for the have-nots. And because of that, there is nothing that needs to disqualify us from that blessing. Look, in this world, when it comes to the good things, the great things, the amazing things, you need some kind of qualification. You need something, you need something, maybe it's a degree, maybe it's this thing, maybe you need to look a certain way, maybe you need to have a certain kind of track record. But when it comes to the blessing of Christmas, the only qualification we need is to recognize we have no qualification. We have nothing that commends us to God. We have nothing that qualifies us for God's salvation, that we cannot save ourselves. The only thing we need to do is to count everything as rubbish, and nonsense in comparison to the joy of being found in Christ. Christmas is for all of us, or can be for all of us, as long as we recognize that before God we are destitute and foolish, and we come as beggars with nothing. And to those people, God gives grace. That's good news. And it's good news because now the weak can say that they are strong. And the poor can say that they are rich. Because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus through Christmas.
And look, that's true now. It's true now. But it will be so much more true in the new heavens and the new earth. Look, in the new heavens and the new earth, they're, they're going to be Christians who, throughout their time on this earth, they could never put together enough money to eat more than once a day. And they, they scrape their way through life. And those Christians will take their seat at the Messianic banquet. And they will, seat, they will sit down with God. And they will eat to abundance. And they will never again know any kind of lack. There are Christians who've lived their whole time oppressed. Christians who had nothing in this world. No power, no influence. Nothing. Right? Um, right? You can think of right, the, the slave trade. Christians. Right? African American Christians who, who had nothing this world. Nothing. That, you, you said no power whatsoever. Those Christians, the Bible says, they will rule angels. They will judge angels. Christians who have been despised for being foolish and not having any kind of intelligence, where their wisdom will be justified when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. It's an opportunity for us to rejoice because in Christmas, God gives grace to the humble. That's the revolution of Christmas. God opposes the party, gives grace to the humble. But before we close, one last thing. This revolution, a revolution is a new thing. It's a groundbreaking thing, right? But I want us to see before we we close that this revolution is a promised revolution. Though it's new, it's also old, right? Because we don't understand this revolution until we understand that this revolution God brings about in order to prove his faithfulness. Christmas tells us the story of God's faithfulness. Look at me from verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Look, Christmas is this revolution. And yet it's this revolution because God is being faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As I was looking at this text, I was stunned by this. God tells Mary, you're going to give birth to a son who's going to be Israel's savior. And Mary says, what's happening now is because of something that happened over 2,000 years before she was born. God's promises to a man called Abraham. In other words, Mary sees that what's happening in Christmas is God proving his faithfulness. And when you look through the Bible, you're tracing God's faithfulness to that promise in particular that through Abraham's offspring, through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And you look through the Bible and their ups and their downs and there are times where Israel looks like they're going you know, to bring about those promises. And there are times where it looks like, no, they're not. There are times where it looks like Israel is going to be wiped out from the planet. And through all those ups and downs, God remains faithful. So much so that when you get to Christmas... And Mary receives this promise. Mary realizes that this son is going to be the proof of God's faithfulness. And look, here today, this morning, we are proof of God's faithfulness. Because here we are, we are gathered from all different families of the earth. And we are praising the God of Abraham. The reason we're doing that is because God has been faithful to his promises to Abraham. 
The reason we're doing that is because God in Christmas has been faithful to his promises. The reason we're doing that is because, oh, through those thousands of years of waiting, God has been faithful. We, we sing that song, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel. That, so, that song that's crying out for Israel's savior, for God to be faithful to his promises. Well, we can look back at Christmas and say, yes, God has been faithful. And so let this Christmas be a reminder to you that God is faithful. Let this Christmas be a reminder to you that all of God's promises are yes and amen. Let this Christmas be a reminder to you that though the promise may seem to slow, though it may seem to delay, it does not delay and it will come to pass. Let this Christmas be a reminder to you that not only is God going to be faithful to the promises he made to Abraham, but God's going to be faithful to his promises to bring us into a new heavens and a new earth. That God is going to be faithful to his promises to wipe every tear from our eyes. That God is going to be faithful to his promises to to eradicate death. That God is going to be faithful to his promises to bring us to himself in a world of pure joy. Christmas is a reminder of God's faithfulness. And that's why Mary has this song of praise. That's why Elizabeth rises and calls, calls Mary blessed. That's why John as a baby in the womb, has the good sense to leap for joy when he senses the presence of Jesus because God is faithful to his promises and his promises are good. Christmas is a reminder that God is faithful. That's why Simeon sang the song that he sang. That's why the angels sang the song that they sang. That's why Zechariah sang the song that he sang because God, in bringing about this revolution, God is faithful and God is going to bring all those promises to that final complete end when his son comes again to bring us the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Christmas. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble. And Lord, I pray, our prayers, that for all the things that we think we have in ourselves, for all the ways that we think we, we bring something to the table, Help us to see, Lord, that we have nothing. Help us to empty ourselves of all those things so that you, almighty God, may lift us up. Lord, I'm praying, Lord, that if there are any of us here who is not yet trusting in you because somehow they have some stock in something that they think they have, Lord, open their eyes to see how fleeting those things are. Open their eyes to see that there is no salvation in those things. Help them, Lord, to be desperate for you. Help them to come to you, knowing that if they come to you, Lord, that you would receive them. And Lord, this Christmas, as we we prepare to go out to celebrate the rest of this day, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness, that you are a faithful God. And no matter how long it seems to take, every single one of your promises you will bring about. Lord, may that comfort us in our distresses, in our pains, in our sorrows, May your faithfulness remind us that, Lord, you have